School is central to a child's life, future, and health. The academics are crucial and in many instances offer the poorest and most at-risk children important tools for reasoning, for survival, and perhaps even for securing quality of life. And yet schools also provide the environments for children to learn social and emotional skills that allow them to mature, to protect themselves from harm, and to adopt the kinds of values that build empathy and nourish the soul. So what does it mean when the COVID-19 pandemic is forcing communities worldwide to limit children's access to schoolrooms, teachers, counselors, and classmates? This is Learning to Overcome, a podcast produced by Matter Unlimited in partnership with Imaginable Futures and UNICEF. I'm Gwen Tompkins. We're talking about feeding the minds, bodies, and souls of some of the world's youngest children. Robert Jenkins heads educational programming for UNICEF, which is active in 190 nations and territories. During his career with the organization, he's worked in Uganda, Bangladesh, Myanmar, India, and Mozambique. Robert Jenkins joins us from New York. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks very much for having me. And Leslie Udwin is an award-winning documentary filmmaker and peace activist. She's the founder of Think Equal, a nonprofit organization working in 13 nations worldwide. Think Equal promotes meaningful early childhood development without gender or racial bias. Leslie Udwin joins us from London. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thrilled to be with you. UNICEF has been active and still is active in almost every corner of the world, dealing with all kinds of multi-layered emergent situations where you're dealing with uh, warfare and COVID, displacement and COVID, poverty and COVID, or sometimes all three and COVID. And so what has the current pandemic confirmed in your mind, Rob Jenkins, about how schools can better deliver on the emotional health and well-being of children against the backdrop of uncertainty? Well, I think it's a great question. At the height of the pandemic, we were 1.6 billion children. Over 90% of children that were attending school had had their schooling interrupted. So UNICEF, because we are active in all um, countries, basically, we mobilized all staff. It was all hands on deck to work with governments, partners to enable children to continue to learn in the best way we can in each context. And that included a whole wide range of interventions recognizing children live in very different contexts and have access to very different levels of resources. So we employed from the highest tech to the lowest tech solutions. In many countries, it was rolling out IT-enabled platforms for children to access world-class learning opportunities, but all the way down to low-tech solutions and supporting teachers and supporting governments to deliver learning materials, textbooks, paper, pens to children while living in their homes using the radio, using television. So the key was to use the right technology and the right ways to reach as many children as possible in each country with a focus on those who are living in the most remote locations from poorest backgrounds and other uh, vulnerable children that needed extra support and extra efforts. Okay, so tailoring the response to the actual conditions on the ground, to the actual situation. Exactly. And so Leslie Udwin, As Robert Jenkins has just mentioned, in communities around the world, each community is trying to put forth a a variety of experiments, trying to address children's emotional and social needs. What initial sequence of steps is 
Think Equal recommending for the world's youngest children when these schools open up again. What are you chomping at the bit for schools to be trying at this time? Gwen, I think I, I need to come back to basics, really. This is not a question of modes of delivery. This is not a question of can we give programs digitally or do we need to give them in hard copy form? Do we need to tailor them to situations of increased violence in the homes right now? This is about giving all children, every single child in the world, what that child's right is. And that child's right is a right to a foundation for positive outcomes in life. Every child has the right to grow up and not become so depressed that they add to this horrific number, which is leading to depression being the number two disease in our world. And it was so before COVID. Yes. So I think we need to be really careful about addressing COVID as all COVID has done, really, I believe, is it has thrown into high relief the inequalities that already existed. So COVID has come along and cracked open the walls and there's now a chink of light that is both defining the darkness that we have lived in and mm -hmm. continue to live in. And this is a chance to grasp that light and turn it into something meaningful. And if we don't, we're going one way as a world. Now, in North Macedonia, which is a small country, we're partnered with UNICEF and funded by the World Bank. We have rolled out Think Equal to every three and four-year-old child in the whole country who, who goes to school. Of course, there are children who don't go to school. Well, the World Bank, in their enlightened wisdom, saw that this program for a year was working wonderfully well and said, we better get these materials to communities that are not at schools. So 8,500 families were given materials because someone was thinking straight and thinking with a duty of care and responsibility to our children. Now, this is a small country, North Macedonia. So you might say, well, it's easy, you know, to ensure that all the children there have this foundation for at least a year, which will last into adulthood, by the way, there's ample longitudinal evidence of that. But the point is, this is how we should be seeing every country in the world. What is needed our duty of care to our children is not just to mandate numeracy and literacy. How can we leave it as optional for them to learn how to value another human being and how to lead healthy relationships? I, I want to just come in and just fully support what Leslie's saying. I think it's really critical for us to acknowledge that uh, we had a learning crisis before the pandemic, including lack of support to social emotional health of children. And yeah, yeah. I think it's critical now for us to seize the opportunity, like initiatives in North Macedonia, but there are many others around the world, to seize the opportunity as we plan for reopening schools to better provide not only learning, but meeting the holistic needs of children, including their social emotional health. Yes, Rob, I'm, I'm making a fist in the air. Thank you. You've expressed <laughs> it perfectly and eloquently. Thank you. <laughs> well, 
Teach us something about children, both of you. Um, I want to start with you, Rob Jenkins. So talk a little bit from your own experiences. As you say, you've been working in half a dozen countries around the world, dealing with children in their earliest years. And can you talk a little bit about the connections that you've seen between a child's earliest years and that child's later ability to mature and become empathic and less prone to violence? Well, I think it's a great question. And the evidence, even quantitative evidence, is very solid that Mm -hmm. interventions early on, early childhood education, early childhood development interventions that focus on learning, but also focus on social-emotional health, social interaction, uh, interacting with peers, communication, and even problem-solving and more kind of higher-level orders of thinking, if you'd like, at younger years can directly correlate to success in children's as they continue along their learning trajectory, but also correlate to lifelong learning and income and even their survival rates in terms of life expectancy. Mm -hmm. So we do recognize investment in early years is the best investment that we can make for a child to be successful in life. It's true. But also, I do want to push you a little bit to talk a little bit from your own personal experience, what you've seen on the ground over this extensive career that you've had dealing with children in a variety of countries. Can you give us any examples that might help us visualize what you see? I can, and I have had the privilege, I guess you'd say, of of working with UNICEF in some very challenging contexts and interacting with children in very challenging contexts. My most recent field posting with UNICEF, I was the head of UNICEF in Jordan and was providing education and other services to children, mostly displaced children and refugee children living in Jordan. And so 88% of those refugee children are feeling stressed due to COVID. And at the beginning of that crisis, we saw the impact of the trauma that they had experienced, many of which had experienced severe trauma um, prior to crossing into a Jordan, fleeing a conflict zone. And I've worked in cyclone-affected areas of Mozambique and flood-affected areas of Bangladesh, etc., just to give examples of some humanitarian context in which I've seen children that have experienced trauma and experienced a complete upending of their lives and their stability. I see. Gwen, Robert, if if I may, I have one story that I would love to tell Mm -hmm. that I think go to the heart of your excellent question here. Leslie Udwin, please tell us your story. Okay, before I do, I just want to underline a couple of scientific facts. 90% of the adult brain is fully developed by the age of five. By the age of six... Two trajectories of neuroactivity in the brain, flat line pretty much, get as close to the bottom as you can get. And they are, according to Shonkoff and Nash, two brilliant neuroscientists who, like many other neuroscientists now, have mapped the human brain and the development of it. And those two trajectories are emotional control and habitual ways of responding. Imagine Mm. how key those are in the perpetration of violence. Yes. In Canada, the head of this little daycare wrote me an email. They had started this program teaching social-emotional learning, the Think Equal program, the previous September. They'd been at it for four months only. This is a program that has three levels, three years, and teaches kids between three and six. A little boy at three had joined this nursery and was so violent... He hit, he bit, he kicked 
anything he could smash, he did. Kicked his mother, had separation anxiety, was either upset or angry or crying. One month in, she had a major revolution in her earlier setting because the boy had bitten a little girl and drawn blood. She called in health workers, parents came, were hysterical and basically said, either that boy is thrown out right now or we are pulling every one of our children out of this school. And she said something in her could not allow this to happen. She just knew that if she allowed this, she would be collaborating in some way with this boy having very negative outcomes. She just sensed that this was not the right thing to do. She said, look, by total coincidence, we've just started a month ago a social-emotional learning program that has anger management tools, that has self-regulation and emotional literacy built in. She said that after one month, of continuing, which is two months of this program, the boy was no longer hitting and kicking. He was only using his words, still a very angry child, but only now using his words, not hurting others. She said, the reason I'm writing to you now is that four months have passed and I have 20 minutes ago witnessed something that I wouldn't have believed possible with my own eyes. And this has moved me to tell you. I saw him with three other boys playing a memory matching game One of the boys was having difficulty making matches and getting frustrated. I saw him put his arm around this kid, look him in the eyes, and he said, don't be sad, you can do it. And then he gave him a hug. Mm. Now that is in four months. We can change our children's antisocial behaviors and attitudes easy by co-constructing with them the right pro-social neuropathways Interesting. And so, Robert Jenkins, I want to ask you about the experiences that most children have when they go to a school, let's say a school that has the resources that you're talking about, a school that provides counseling as well as teachers, as well as a real foundation for success. And in a best case scenario, the children learn so much outside of class on the playground. They learn about how to observe human behavior, how to talk to one another, how to develop the emotional and social skills to be able to avoid fighting and to recognize that children around them are not experiencing maybe the same household environments that they're experiencing. And so how do you think that this kind of learning can occur within an environment in which children are more likely to be meeting at school less frequently? You know, indeed, it is challenging, and and I'm glad you're raising the important role that uh, schools and are not sufficiently providing that function, even when they're open. The role schools can play in meeting the social emotional needs of children and in enabling um, them to develop in the ways you've been mentioning. And it is indeed particularly trying now, as schools in many countries remain closed. What we have seen that has proven effective is providing teachers with the training to support mental health of their students, even through remotely, but also support the families as a whole, including parents and engaging with parents on how that can be done, supporting children as they're returning to school and planning for that return. This, and I keep coming back to that, but giving children the chance to take control of their situation, to engage in that decision, to continue to engage with friends to the extent that's safely possible to do so. Um, 
but also to proactively engage with uh, and have conversations with children, check in with them, see how they were doing, um, recognizing that this is an incredibly challenging and trying time for children and for their parents, and to welcome those emotions or let those emotions express themselves and to support children as they ride this very trying roller coaster that, that we're all currently on. I mean, whether at school or at home, caregivers can engage with children in, in creative activities that obviously needs to be supported to the extent that we all can and work together, including playing and communication and ex- enabling children to express themselves. But also, I think we should recognize that children take their emotional cues from their key adults in their lives, including their parents and their teachers. And so therefore, it's also important of all of us as parents and adults to work together and to be skilled to the extent that we can be to engage with children and provide the emotional support and and support their social emotional well-being the best we can during this trying time. Leslie Udwin, when you think about the kinds of experiences that really you're promoting, uh, the kinds of experiences that a child normally has at school, maybe between classes, maybe on the playground, the kinds of experiences that give children the opportunity to practice lessons in social and emotional learning. What can be done virtually? What can be done in terms of distance learning that can in some way create those types of intimate experiences? Well, we can do it. And we have, of course, like so many other NGOs, turned all of our energies and attentions to digitizing our materials because the minute lockdowns began around the world, we realized, oh, my God, we're going to lose our contact with our children because we reach them in school. So, you know, one of the first things we did was create home kits, home activities so that parents can take over uh, and teach these social and emotional skills and competencies. The work that we have created and designed is prescriptive. It's like a vaccination against a pandemic of discrimination and violence and antisocial attitudes and depression, etc. So we give prescriptive lessons to, to teachers and prescriptive activities to parents. And the reason it has to be prescriptive is that the people mediating it are adults who have not learnt it themselves, who we cannot rely on for an even-handed understanding of what books do I curate? What games do I play with a child? What stories do I tell the child to try and ensure that the child is experientially building pro-social behaviors and attitudes. And so if you could share with us, Robert Jenkins, for example, something that we can visualize, what questions should we be asking kids before the age of six during this time on a daily basis? What kinds of questions do we need to be asking? How would a conversation go in terms of offering the support that you're talking about and assessing how kids are doing? 
Well, I think what's critical is it's age appropriate. For younger children, it's often hooked on to other activities. So you're into drawing or playing and seizing that opportunity to let children um, express themselves, to let them draw pictures, say, for example, if their schools are still closed, of the school, how does the school look to them, of their friends, of their parents, of their families, of their communities, of um, and using platforms like that than to engage children at their level as they would like to, as they're expressing themselves, and to welcome that expression and to seize the opportunity to have this interaction and conversation and to, again, um, engage children in a way that in, that they feel that they're being heard and they're working through this trying time as we all are. And so help us visualize, uh, Leslie Udwin, something that parents can take away from this conversation today. What in your best view, can a parent do right now? How would a conversation unfold between a parent and child below the age of six, let's say, in terms of being able to assess where the child is emotionally, socially, and improve upon it? So one of the most important things a parent must do is encourage a child to label and name their emotions. This is one of the key things, but I don't want to telescope social and emotional learning down to emotional intelligence, literacy, and self-regulation. There is so much more to it. You know, critical thinking and self-esteem and inclusion and goal setting, uh, global citizenship, perspective taking, collaboration, being an advocate for others, celebration of diversity, gender equality, all of these things need to be taught discussed and experientially shared. Now, the easiest answer I can give you as to what a parent can do right now, they can go onto a certain website. I'll let you guess which it is. I mean, it's www.thinkequal.com. I mean, I can only talk about what I know and what I have to offer for free, for free. They can go on that website. They can put in their email address, and they will immediately be sent as a gift, six weeks worth of this training, this social and emotional learning for them and their children at home. There's also for teachers, and they can also have six weeks worth for free. And so, Leslie Udwin, how does Think Equal address teaching about the perils of racism to young children, young children uh, below the age of six? How can that be done? There is a Think Equal lesson which had been taught uh, over three lessons in one week. That's all about the fact that when we call people white, this is not factually accurate language, when we call people black, Actually, it's not factually accurate because if they're black, what color is their hair then? You know, and we literally teach our children we are all brown, every single one of us. And that is the truth because we all have melatonin in our skin and we are all brown. We're just different shades of brown. So do you see this actually has such an effect uh, on children at that age, because that was very much your question. How does this inform a child into adulthood? Once those neuropathways are built that have that information 
those facts in the child's head. The child can't then go on and see us as divided. You are this and I am that. And why is this important? I'll tell you why it's important, because very soon those children are going to be entering an arena where language and culture start to intermesh. And metaphoric language is going to start being used, and they're going to hear about the black heart of the villain, blackmail, the black sheep of the family, a black mark against your name, etc. What are we doing to our children? You know? And it's so easily fixed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Robert Jenkins, let's talk a little bit about the future. Right now, this pandemic has dragged on for some months, and there's still such a feeling of uncertainty in terms of what this time next year will be like. But if you can cast your mind forward in your capacity at UNICEF and tell us about what tools might be available to educators, to communities, to children that might help mitigate some of the uh, distancing effects that we have seen of this pandemic and perhaps might be useful post-pandemic to the world. Well, I think you're raising a very important point. And UNICEF is calling for schools to be prioritized for opening as countries uh, are developing and implementing their reopening plans. The urgency to open schools and to take all actions to ensure they're open safely is based on evidence of previous school closures, like the long-term school closures in West Africa as a result of the Ebola crisis, in which we saw that the longer schools remain closed, the more vulnerable children become, and also the increasing risk that children will not return to school. And we saw tens of thousands of children not return in, in the case of West Africa school closures. And there are some very big numbers that are being modeled now and being shared like tens of millions, potentially 25 million children globally not returning to school if indeed we don't all work very uh, closely and proactively to mitigate those risks and do the best we can for all vulnerable children to return. What's critical is children need to know when they will be returning to the school and also what that school will look like. It's come up repeatedly in this conversation the importance of engaging with children, involving them, and empowering them, if you'd like, giving them the opportunity to participate in those conversations and to contribute. There are many solutions that are being um, rolled out, depending on the context, many of which provide a lot of optimism of what's working and lessons that can be taken to other contexts, of course, tailored to each context. Context as necessary. Let me just give a couple of snapshots. Mm-hmm. Um, in mid-May, after a two-month-long school closure in Lao PDR, um, the Ministry of Education issued safe school guidance for schools and reopened it in phases. UNICEF did support the ministry to develop those plans and critical in Laos for the success was the communication campaign and, and engaging with parents, teachers, and students. As part of that, of course, it was posters and radio spots and other distributed materials. But the goal was in everyone staying on the same page, parents, teachers, students, government officials, but also to feel that they've contributed and and they own the process of reopening. Um, In Vietnam, similarly, there was amazingly impressive interventions to provide as schools were reopening to provide much more comprehensive support, including environmental and and food and hygiene support and behavior change uh, support at at schools, but also strengthening 
sanitation and, and medical support and including things that we've seen in other countries too that enable children to be as safe as possible as schools are reopening. Okay, let's turn now to final thoughts. Robert Jenkins, what do you take away from from this conversation, from this uh, situation that the world has found itself in? My takeaway is a few things. One is the amazing resilience of children, the sort of inner strength that children have, and the importance of a family unit and for children to be able to weather broader uh, challenges in their communities and their countries, and how important it is for some sense of stability, and therefore important for us, while we, of course, at UNICEF are laser-focused on supporting children, recognize that their parents and their household needs a sense of safety and a sense of well-being and stability and how those things are very linked. I have also seen incredible, not only resilience, but the way children can bounce back and, and the extent children will go to continue to develop and access learning and thrive. And there is children that I met and interacted with and had the privilege of supporting in refugee camps in Jordan that have come on, have gone on to study globally in universities and are now one of which is a goodwill ambassador for UNICEF and is a global leader in education thinking. And so honestly, I take away a great deal of optimism of the resilience of children and the drive to for them to better their own lives and better the lives of their communities. And Leslie Udwin, last thoughts from you. This too shall pass as epidemics uh, and pandemics go, right? We've been through Spanish flu, Ebola, etc. Of course, it's going to pass. It's a question of how long, it's a question of when the vaccine will come, etc. But what will not pass without an absolute concerted effort from each and every one of us is to recalibrate our values. And that is the biggest challenge facing us. And if we don't take that from this pandemic, it will have been a complete and absolute waste and a tragedy. We have to rethink our value system and start to really take care of our children, of our next generations, and indeed of ourselves. You know, it's much more expensive to fix a problem of a lack of well-being and mental health issues that arise because of this sad, bad wiring in the brain. Much more difficult and expensive to fix that than it is to get it right in the first place. I think that we stand a chance of getting there. Just take a look around the world at what people are starting to realize, what they are starting to do. People going out, you know, in droves on protests. People are not sitting back and saying, you know what, this is the way the world is. They're not despairing anymore. People are actually waking up. They are saying there is something we can do and there is something we must do. And that is my only hope. It's my only hope for Agenda 2030 of the UN that every nation on earth has subscribed to and signed up for. It's my only hope for us getting somewhere that is in time to stop a climate disaster. H.G. Wells actually said, civilization is a race between education and catastrophe. And this is so true, you know, but the really important question that I want to stress is what kind of education? 
And, you know, this, this podcast is centered quite rightly and beautifully on social and emotional learning. Education has to become reimagined and redefined. So much lies there because educating us to be more generous, educating us to be more compassionate, educating us to have empathy, which is the glue that sticks all of these competencies and skills together, is what is going to save us. Well, I believe you. I believe you. Thank you. Leslie Udwin is the head of Think Equal, which seeks to eradicate gender and racial bias in early childhood education in nations around the world. Leslie Udwin, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved talking to you. Thank you so much. Robert Jenkins is the head of education programs for UNICEF. He joined us from New York. A real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Learning to Overcome, a podcast produced by Matter Unlimited in partnership with Imaginable Futures and UNICEF. Thanks for being with us.